from Job chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at just chapter 4 this morning and chapter 5 next week, but they go together. It's one response, it's one speech by Eliphaz, but we'll be taking Job chapter 4, 1 through 21 this morning. It's on page 418. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word this morning, we come expectantly. We ask for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Please show us the true meaning of this passage. Help us to understand it. First and foremost, we want to understand your word. Would you please answer that prayer? And then, Father, also show us how it makes a difference, and also show us how this points to Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes distortion can be a good thing. For example, when playing the electric guitar, distortion is a good thing. Distortion is a change in the sound wave, the sound signal during the processing, so it comes out and it has that kind of crunchy, punchy sound uh, that is prevalent in a lot of music today. And that's, that's a good thing. Musicians end up spending quite a bit of money on amplifiers that have built-in distortion settings or pedals that they can tap with their foot and allow the signal to be distorted. We like that. It's a good thing. So that's, that's good. But distortion can also be a bad thing. When someone gives an inaccurate account of an event, something that happened, or a misleading impression of, of something someone said, that's, that's called distortion. And when they do that, they usually don't tell a whole new story that's completely different. There's usually some truth to it, but it's twisted a little bit. There, there's some lies that are inserted. It's distorted. That's why it's called distortion. It's not the straight truth, it's a twisting or a distortion. In Job chapter 4 and 5, Eliphaz speaks to Job, but his theology is distorted. It's not straight and true. There's something off. There's something twisted. He provides two different distortions about God and man. So what we want to do is we want to see what those are. We want to identify the distortions in Eliphaz's speech. And then we're going to see Lord willing, next week, how he tries to convince Job to, to act according to these distortions. So it, it's one unit, but it takes up uh, quite a bit of space. And then finally, we're going to get rid of the distortion. We want, to, we want a clean signal. So we want, to, we want to clear up the distortion. We want to see what God's Word says, what the truth is concerning God and man. So... This is probably one of the most two closely linked messages I've ever delivered. So in other words, these are not standalone messages. They really are dependent upon one another. So in order to get the most out of next week, you really should be here this week. And in order to get the most out of this week, you really need to be here next week. They go together. And the reason for that is, it is one passage, it is one long extended speech from a life as but it's just too long to cover on one Sunday morning. So rather than subject ourselves to a 90-minute 
sermon. I think it would be better to, to chop it up. So let's go ahead and read it. This is just chapter 4, and we'll take the next chapter, Lord willing, next week. So here's Job chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made them made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily, my ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came to me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like a moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? This is the first half of a life as. Remember, Job is suffering. He is suffering. Everything has been taken away. He's sitting there in excruciating pain. And three friends show up to give him counsel and, and comfort. This is the first of the three friends, a life house. This is the first time he speaks. He will speak three times during the book of Job. And when we look at the first couple of, of opening words, it, it starts off okay. He starts off kind of uh, easing into it. His opening lines are, are fine. He, he speaks to Job with, with polite and respectful language. It's almost asking permission to, to speak with him. If one ventures a word, will you be impatient? And then we look at verses 3 through 6, and Eliphaz essentially says, you know what, Job, it's your turn. You've been on the other end of it in your life. You've been the one giving advice. You've been the one comforting people, building them up, encouraging them. In their time of need, guess what? It's your time of need. You're on the receiving end. It's your turn. We'll be the instructors this time. We'll be the counselors this time. And Eliphaz, based on Job's circumstances, his physical presentation, and the opening words that Job spoke last week, remember, just make it stop. That was last week's message. Chapter 3 was, was Job's emotional outpouring in the midst of all this suffering. So based on all that, Eliphaz diagnoses Job as being impatient, 
and dismayed. Impatient and dismayed. Why? Because Eliphaz assumes that Job knows the answer to his suffering. Job should know how to escape all of this and to bring it to an end. And he reminds Job of what he should already know. Remember who, was, who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off. He's, he's trying to remind Job of something he assumes he already knows. And in verse 7, we have introduced the prevailing theology of Job's three friends for the rest of the book. This is it. Good people have good things happen to them. Bad people have bad things happen to them. It's pretty simple. Straightforward. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? The unspoken answer is, never. The unspoken answer is, that that's not how it works, Job. Remember? Good people have good things happen to them in, the, in this life. Bad people have bad things. People perish or cut off because they did something wrong. That's why. Now what is this? It's a distortion. It's a twisting. Because that's not how it works. That's a distorted version of the truth. Nevertheless, that's a life as his position. Good people have good things happen to them, bad things have bad things happen to them. And then he grounds this in a couple of things. So number one, the first thing he grounds it in it is experiential observation. Look at verse 8. As I have seen, okay, at the end of chapter in chapter 5, he, he's basically going to tell Job, uh, you need to listen to me. I, we know what we're talking about. We, we've, we've looked at this before. You can trust us. Here it is. As I have seen, speaking from his lifetime of wisdom, a life as, as God wipes out the wicked. They perish. They are consumed. If you do something bad, then you reap bad. That's the theology. That's the distorted theology. Verses 9 through 11, he uses the imagery of a lion, a strong and powerful predator. We're all familiar with lions. They're, they're the dangerous cats that they keep in zoos behind enclosures so they don't hurt or injure or kill someone. And in the wild, we know that uh, lions fall on their prey. They devour it. They, they, they eat other animals. That's the way they work. They're, they're very dangerous, very aggressive. Even the lion can be stuffed and destroyed. Likewise, a pride, prideful and, and powerful person who acts wickedly and does bad things is also brought low and destroyed by God. It doesn't matter how, how strong or powerful or how important someone is in this world. If they do something bad, God's in charge and he's going to bring retributive justice. He's going to bring them down. The teeth of the lion are broken. The lion perishes. The cubs of the lionesses are scattered. Do you hear that? That's a not-so-subtle reference to Job's children. Did you catch that? The cubs of the lioness are, are scattered, and, and Job's children, remember, they were wiped out in a day. This was not something that progressively happened over several years. This was an act of God, according to, to Eliphaz, and ultimately we realize this is all in God's hands. This happened suddenly. This, this was no accident. Here's the message. You've done something bad, Job. You've done something to disturb this, uh, excuse me, to deserve this. And now we see 
why in the opening chapters of Job, how important it was to establish the righteousness of Job. You remember covering that? Three times. We saw it once from the author of Job, and then we saw it twice from the mouth of God himself. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He turns from evil. Three times. That's not to contradict the doctrine of total depravity. That's to show us Job, in all this, did not sin in such a way that he deserved this punishment or the suffering from God. The, the author and the intent of the book is to show us that Job is the righteous man. He was living righteously before God. He did not deserve this. Now we see how important that is because the rest of the book, the friends are saying, you did something to deserve this. But he did not. Verses 12 through 17, Eliphaz has already grounded his authority in experiential observation, as I have seen Okay, now we're turning to another grounding of his authority for his distorted theology, and that is in the counsel of a supernatural message delivered to him in the middle of the night, at some point in the past. Delivered to him by a spirit at night, so we're just going to call this in our discussion right now, the night spirit. Okay, that whole section, we're just going to call it the night spirit. It says, now a word was brought to me stealthily. Who brought it and what kind of word? Those are the two questions. A word was brought to me stealthily. Okay, who brought it and, and what was the word? Those are the important WH questions. Verse 16 says, a spirit. Now, in the Hebrew language, there's one word for spirit, wind, and breath. You've probably heard that before. Okay, the Holy Spirit is the same word for, for spirit here. So in this context, it's translated correctly as spirit. It's not wind, it's not breath. And then when, even when we divide it down, okay, we, we know it's a spirit. Spirit can have different meanings. For example, Genesis 1-2, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Same word, ruach. That's in Hebrew, spirit. Okay, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. It can also refer to uh, someone's emotion or disposition. For example, in Genesis 41.8, remember when Pharaoh had that very disturbing dream about the, the cows and the corn and the lean ones eating up the fat ones, he woke up and he said, Pharaoh, in the morning, his spirit was troubled. Same word, spirit. And other meanings. Uh, spirit can also mean a few other things. But it can also mean a created spirit like an angel or a demon. It could be an angel or a demon. And that's the context here. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the Spirit of God that glided past his face and revealed these things. But it is a supernatural spiritual being that can move and can communicate. So the question is, who is this night spirit? Is it an angel or is it a demon? Really, those are the only two choices. Well, angels communicate messages. Some of us might be thinking, well, it might be an angel. Angels, after all, in, in the, the word for angel means messenger, and they often deliver messages for God. For example, Luke 1, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to announce the, the birth announcement of Jesus. So the angel Gabriel delivered a message, and I'm sure you can think of some other examples. But we also have an example of a spirit, not an angel, bringing a false message, communicating a false message. So this one's worth taking a look at in context. We'll put it up on the screen. This is 1 Kings 22, 19 through 22. So this is King Ahab 
And the, there's going to be a spirit that brings a false message. So, and Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. So a spirit could be an angel delivering a message or it could be a demon delivering a message. Now let's look back at our passage to help us guide our our understanding here of what's what kind of spirit this is. Verse 14, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. This is a scary encounter. This is terrifying. Eliphaz was afraid. Somebody might say, well, on the other hand, when angels speak to people, they're afraid. True, that's correct. But what do the angels say? What is almost in every case, what is the very first thing an angel says when delivering a message to someone, do not fear, or fear not, do not be afraid. Almost universally. We don't see anything like here, that here. We don't see uh, the Spirit saying, do not be afraid. Instead, it glided past Eliphaz's face, causing his hair to stand on end, causing him to be terrified. That doesn't sound like an angel. Verse 16, it stood still. How creepy is that? It comes in and later on says silence. So he, he knows that this is the spirit realizes this is a terrifying situation, but it remains still and doesn't say anything. It just allows a life has to soak in this in this terror. Does that sound like an angel? Prolonging terror? No, this is a far cry from an angel showing up to deliver a message from God and telling the recipient to fear not. So it looks like this is an, an evil spirit. In other words, a demon. This does not look or behave like an angel. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. Remember the two questions were who brought it and what was the word? Well, I think we have identified this is an evil spirit bringing a message. What kind of message, what kind of word was given? Well, finally the spirit speaks. Now if you look at the ESV, if you've got one of those, you'll notice a single quotation mark that starts in verse 17 in front of the word can, can mortal man, and then it doesn't end all the way until verse 21 after the last word wisdom. I don't know if that's what, I don't know what translation you're using, but if you're using an ESV, that's where the single quotation marks are, are appearing. It's an interpretive choice, and I think it's the correct one. So what they're saying is, everything in between those single quotation marks is the message from the night spirit. So the night spirit speaks, and he begins, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Again, if you have an ESV, if you have a footnote there, and you look down at the bottom, it says, or more than, meaning comparing to. When you, when you compare something, is it more than, is it less than, is it equal to? That's, that's comparison language. And one Old Testament scholar has translated this as, compared to. So it would read, can mortal man be in the right compared to God? Or can mortal man be pure 
compared to his maker. And I think that's the sense that's being communicated in, in, this, in this text. It's comparing man to God. Compared to God, can mortal man be in the right? Compared to his maker, can man be pure? The night spirit's message continues. God doesn't trust angels, so why would he trust man? If angels aren't even on the same level as God, then man must be, must be even lower. Man's made out of dust. He's nothing. He's crushed like a moth when God decides time is up. Man is to God what annoying bugs are to people. Between morning and evening, they're beaten to pieces day after day, all day long. Between morning and evening, people are beaten down and killed. And they are of no account. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is that true? Does man mean so little to God that he doesn't regard the death of his created image bearers? No. No. That's a distortion. God loves people so much that he, saved his, he sent his son to save them. That's what John 3.16 says, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves people. God loves all people. So he sent Jesus Christ to be the atoning sacrifice to pay for their sin. Now, that doesn't mean that the benefits of Jesus Christ are applied to all people. God does love all people. They're all image bearers. I hope we understand that. Even unbelievers, even unregenerate, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, unbelievers are still made in the image of God. They're still his image bearers. But not everyone has the benefits of Jesus' atoning work applied to them. It's only the elect. It's only those who are called. So I would urge you this morning, if you're, if you're not in Christ, if you are not confident, if you're not sure, if you, you're unclear, turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and belief. Only those that put their faith in Jesus Christ have the benefits of Christ applied to them. Turn to Jesus Christ. Well, back to, to the night spirit here. It says, mortal life's man is compared to a tent that had his main support cord being plucked up. Immediately, the tent collapses. You, know, you, you think about this tent, maybe even a big like circus tent type thing where you pull out that, that center pole, that cord, the whole thing just implodes immediately. It falls down. Here one moment, go on the next with no knowledge of how to make sense of it all. The message is this. This is how insignificant and small mortal man is compared to God. What do we think of that message from the night spirit? It's distorted. It's not true. Does that even sound like God? Does that sound like an angel delivering a message? No. It sounds like a demon who's taking God's word and twisted it, who distorts it. Now, if we look back at verse 17, there, there's some truth to that. Yes, no man can be perfectly pure and, and, and moral and before God. I mean, in that sense, we're all stained with the, with the stain of sin. We all have original sin. We all have sin that we actually commit during our lifetime. Yes, that's true. We believe in total depravity. No one can um, 
stand before God on their own in a completely pure, righteous state. But it is possible to live before God in a right relationship through faith. It is possible to please God. It is possible to be, as God described Job, a blameless and upright man who turned from evil and fears God. Does God sit up in heaven and snuff out people's lives like crushing them off? No. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Does God, do people die without God regarding it? No. Matthew 10, 29-31 Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. All image bearers. Man is more valuable than a moth or a sparrow. Man is far above the animals. Men and women are created in the image of God and they're given a soul. This is a twisted message from an evil spirit. It's designed to paint mankind as lowly creatures, incapable of right living, despised and, de- and tolerated by detached and impersonal, capricious God who on a whim decides to strike them down and crush them like, a, like an irritating bug. Terminates their existence without feeling. It's a false portrayal of man. It's a false portrayal of God. It brings man much lower than scripture does, which means it brings man much lower than reality. It's distorted. So this was an evil message from an evil spirit, but curiously, Eliphaz adopted it as his own. As we're going to go through the rest of this book, uh, Eliphaz, this is his thing. Uh, Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Uh, We're so down here, we're so low, we're insignificant compared to God. Uh, We're going to see this pop up again in chapter 15. We're going to see it pop up and be uh, spoken of in very similar language by Bildad in chapter 25. So this isn't going away. For whatever reason, Eliphaz and his friends have adopted this night spirit distorted message and are now using this as part of their counsel to Job. Why did Eliphaz adopt the night spirit's message? If it was that terrifying, couldn't he have figured it out? Well, there might be a lot of explanations, but I think the short answer is he was deceived. He was deceived. We do know that in the 1 Kings 22 context with Ahab, God tells the lying spirit, you will succeed. And then he goes before Ahab, and he succeeds. Ahab believes the lying spirit. Ahab is deceived. So I think we've got a similar thing going on here with the deceptive spirit, deceptive, distorted message. The truth is that God loves people so much that he sent his son to die for them. That's the truth. God looks on us with fatherly compassion. That's the truth. We're going to save the bulk of the the application for next week, but let's make sure we've identified the two distorted messages. Remember, that's one of our goals. We want to identify the distortion. Number one, man is disregarded by and insignificant to God. In other words, man is way down here, this kind of hyper-exaggerated, really low status of man. That's the distortion about man. It's the message of the night spirit. 
And it's just not true. Brothers and sisters, you are considered to be holy in Christ. That's what scripture says. God calls us holy. He loves you with the steadfast, covenantal, faithful love that he has promised to all those who he's called to himself. And it's not going away. In covenant, God has pledged himself to you in love, in faithfulness, and that will never change. He looks on us with fatherly compassion. He knows you're going in, he knows you're going out, and he will never leave you. He promised his presence always. Remember, that's right at the end of the Great Commission. And lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. That's how much God loves us. That's the truth. This is light years away from the idea that God is this kind of big, all-powerful genie that looks down his nose on these ant-like creatures and snuffs them out whenever he feels like it. That's, that's not it at all. With a blast of his anger in verse 9. No, that's not it. So a low view of man, hyper, ex- extreme low view of man, that's the first distortion. And number two, cause and effect theology. Good things happen to good things, uh, good people, and bad things happen to bad things. This is very similar to the, to the false teaching of karma. It, it's eerily similar to that, to that false teaching. It's just not true. Uh, I would suggest reading the Jesus' uh, teaching in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, where obviously it's very clear that the believer receives bad things during his lifetime, nothing good, and the unbeliever lives a life of luxury and indulgence. We're going to stop there and pick up chapter 5 next week, and I I really appreciate you hanging in there. Here's the thing. This is difficult material. This is a difficult book, and this is difficult material. I think I mentioned at the beginning, or the, the, the outset of the, of the sermon series, chapters 1 and 2, mm-hmm. breeze right through those, good stuff. Chapter 38, okay, picks up, God starts to talk at the end, and then chapter 42, yeah, we get that, that's the, the epilogue, everything's, everything's good at the end. But chapters 3 through 37, a lot of people read this and they just kind of give up. They say, you know, I'm going to start to skim here until I get to where God speaks because there's a lot of things in here that just don't make sense on the cursory reading. We've got to dig deep. And remember, one of the interpretive rules for understanding the Bible is it can never mean something for us today that it didn't mean for the original readers. Which means if we're going to rightly interpret and understand and apply this passage for us today, we've got to do the hard work of digging in and understanding what it originally meant. So that's what we're going to do. Thanks for hanging in there, and thanks for hanging on until next Sunday, where we can look at the bulk of the application and the rest of Elias' speech. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess that it is not always... Uh, an easy thing to to read and understand. Sometimes it just takes the good, old-fashioned, roll-up-the-sleeves work to get to the bottom of the original meaning. But Father, we also thank you for the fact that Scripture interprets Scripture so we can compare this to other parts of the Bible and, and figure it out. Father, we pray for a right understanding of who we are in Christ We are not insignificant to you. We are not disregarded. We are loved with a covenantal fatherly love. 
that never dies, that never goes away. Father, we thank you for your compassion and your faithfulness in all spiritual blessings that are ours through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.